Good morning. How are y'all? Good. Please turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 12. I know you started this book last week, and you know the <clears throat> by now the context of what's going on, what Paul is addressing with these Thessalonian Christians. They're new believers, relatively new. Some have taught them that the Lord has already come, they've been left behind. So we have that very strong teaching of the geography of death or the blessed hope that we looked at in 1 Thessalonians 4. And apparently in between the first and second letter, uh, there's still this lingering doubt or at least some uh, unfaithful teaching about what has happened that the Lord has come and left you behind, or some confusion about what is going to happen in the future. And we are, uh, we are spoiled. We have the Word of God intact. We have all the books of the Bible. We've had them for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. We've learned these truths about Christ's second coming and what happens to us after death and so forth. We've had this uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. These Thessalonians, it's easy to understand how they could be confused. And after all, they've risked everything. They're, they have uh, lost friends. They are losing business because they're being boycotted. They may not be thrown into jail. They're man, maybe they're not being beaten. Uh, but they are, they're suffering financially. Uh, they're risking uh, life and limb and their well-being for Christ, and they're wondering, is it worth it? Are we pursuing something that's a charade, or has, has the phenomenon already passed, and it's, it's not for us anymore? And so Paul is writing to assure them of what is true, and he starts with God. Remember who God is, His character, what He has said to you. And uh, that has been their encouragement. So far, they've been suffering well. He says He praises them, verse 4. He boasts about them for their steadfastness of faith, their faith in, in God, the character of God. And then the all-importance or the, the, prime, the, the, the priority of this truth that he is giving them about this is what God is going to do. This is, this is what you can bank on. You can be sure that God has the future in his hands. It's all uh, summarized even within the book with a benediction in verses 16 and 17. That's sort of unusual that a benediction comes in the middle of a book. Usually it's at the end of the book. And here Paul says, I want you to know this so much that even if you happen to tune out on the rest of what I write, which of course he doesn't want that, but in, in chapter 3 he gives some, some exhortations. But I want you to understand that God has the future. He has the present. He has the future in his hands. He has you. And maybe you need to know that yourselves today. And if so, then Read with me as we begin in verse 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. 
This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, every one of us needs to know that you have us. You have us in your hand. You have us here in the present. You have us in the future. That you have the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will be faithful to your promises. We need to know that. But we need more than knowing it. We need it so that we can stand firm for you. Because we want to hear at the great day, well done, good and faithful servants. So give us what we need to know. Make us whom we need to be. And enable us to do what you're calling us to do. We pray in Jesus' name and God's men said together, amen. I had a young member of my church I used to pastor who was a passionate Pittsburgh Steelers fan. She now works for the National Security Agency, and believe me, we are glad she's on our side. She was a, she's a genius. Um, she can't find her way on the local streets from A to B. Uh, had a little trouble with directions and practical things, but she's a genius when it comes to math and science and so forth. But she was a passionate Steelers fan, so much so that it would uh, wreck her day. It could wreck her whole week if they lost, and uh, especially if she had seen them lose. So she developed a, uh, a, a coping strategy. She would pre-record the games. She would record the games. And if they won, she would watch it. She only watched them if she knew they were going to win. So she could, uh, you know, the dad would tell her, uh, the Steelers won. You can watch. Okay, great. She would watch the game. And, you know, there's a turnover. There's a setback. They don't make the fourth down conversion, whatever it is. She doesn't worry. She knows they're going to win. No matter what the setbacks are, what the twists and turns of the game are, They're going to win. Now, that's what Paul is doing for us in a passage like this. It's what we repeated over and over as we studied here at Second in the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. 
And uh, Paul is giving details to these Thessalonian Christians. This is what's going to happen to you when you die. This is what will happen to your soul. This is what will happen to your body. This is what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. But apparently they're asking, but what about the bad guys? What about evil? What about wickedness? We, you, you've assured us about what's going to happen to our bodies and our souls, but we have this, this deep desire for justice. And we are being persecuted. We're being, as Paul says, put to death, led like sheep to the slaughter all day long. What are you going to do about them? And so Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives them what they need to hear, what we need to hear as well. God has our present, our future, but also the world's present and the world's future in his hand. He's a righteous God. And because he is, because he's a righteous judge, we can stand firm. Now, something uh, is presupposed here by Paul before he launches into into these uh, uh, verses on the coming judgment. He presupposes that every Christian is going to suffer. He presupposes every Christian uh, will be persecuted. Paul has said it elsewhere, says it to Timothy. All who desire to live in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no way to go through this world standing for Christ and not lose friends, not lose sales, not lose business, for it not to cost you some money, for it not to cost you some family members, uh, maybe even to be hurt physically. It's certainly costing our brothers and sisters in, in um, far-flung places of the, of the world. In most of the missionaries we support around the world, we can't even mention their last names because they're in such dangerous places. Um, in, uh, in China, for instance, our brothers and sisters are suffering every day. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He presupposes that. He presupposes that we will all suffer internally, externally, as a result of walking with Christ because we are united to Christ. Theology, there's this basic, this basic theological uh, principle that we find in Scripture. Every place it says, this is true of you in Christ. We call that union with Christ. When you're saved, He unites your body and soul to Him. So that, uh, that's what secures you for eternity. But that also means that our lives follow His pattern. And so, if Christ suffered, and if the Bible says His suffering is not complete, that means His atonement is complete, but His suffering, that is, that His, his ability to, to be convinced that God loves Him and to love the Lord in response, regardless of persecution, that suffering had a redemptive apologetic function, that the love of God is stronger than persecution and suffering. If that is what is true of the Lord Jesus, then it will be true of us too. We have a vocation, the old folks used to say, we have a vocation of suffering. It's part of our calling that the world must see us suffer 
in all the ways that it experiences and in addition be persecuted so that when we say we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, we love him, he loves us, they can say, oh yeah, well, if things are going easy for you, I can understand that, but oh, oh my goodness, you still say that? Given what you're going through now, given what I'm doing to you as an unbeliever, you still say the Lord Jesus loves you and holds you? I have to listen to that. All of that is presupposed by the Apostle Paul. And uh, it's important for us to have that in mind before we study each of these verses in turn. One more image of that union with Christ in his suffering I just read about. I read an article recently about the about how many pastors are leaving the ministry and how many have have um, have become clinically depressed and it's been a it's been a rough several years for pastors. Some, almost forty percent of pastors have left the ministry or changed uh, jobs or vocation. And uh, one minister was giving uh, a story of a friend and. This friend was an Anglican priest, and I just recently learned this, but at an Anglican priest's ordination, the last thing done is that the ordinand lies down face first, prostrate, stretches his arms out, legs straight behind, in a cruciform shape, imitation of the cross, saying, I am putting myself on the cross of Christ putting myself under the cross of Christ to bear this for him. This one priest who was on the verge of quitting, happened to be a woman, the priest was on the verge of quitting. She had just had one, one more betrayal of someone claiming to be a friend, claiming to be a fellow leader, so forth. One more betrayal. And she said, that's enough. And then she thought, before I leave this vocation, I'm going to resume that posture that I had at ordination. And she said she had this image as she lay there of the Lord Jesus himself covering her and absorbing her into himself, saying, you're doing this for me. This is what I experienced. So this is normal. It's to be expected. And knowing that it was what she was supposed to be doing, that it was her vocation, that she had the dignity of doing it with and under and with the ability of Jesus gave her the enablement, the inspiration to continue forward. That's the image that Paul is trying to convey to us, not just pastors and priests, but to every Christian. You are bearing the cross with him and for him. And even if you can't see the immediate reason for your suffering, you may know that it's being sanctified to your good, but also as an apologetic to those around you, and also, as we learn from Job, as an apologetic to his cosmic accusers, to the demons, to the devil himself. This one, this one is so captured by my love, they will not leave me because I will not let go of them. Two simple points here. Breaks down this way. Verses 5 to 10 and 11 and 12. 
that Jesus, that God is a righteous judge, we stand firm. And to stand firm, we have to know why do believers suffer persecution? Why do believers suffer persecution? Can't there be any other way? And uh, ultimately, we can't enter the mystery of that. But here are the strategic reasons that are given. There are three of them in uh, this passage from verses 5 to 10. The first one is, it proves when we suffer persecution for, um, for the kingdom of God, it proves we are members of God's kingdom. Now, when I say suffer persecution, I'm meaning that inner persecution of the devil himself uh, that maybe no one else sees. Uh, It could be external and obvious, but anything that is threatening your faith, anything that is a cost to you for following Jesus, we can call that persecution. And suffering persecution Uh, and continuing to believe, to stand firm in the Lord Jesus, proves we are members of God's kingdom. See in verse 5, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Well, there are two things, at least. One is that that he's going to judge the others. This This is the evidence of the righteousness of God. He is going to judge the others. This is the evidence of the judgment of God that the wicked cause, cause uh, the righteous, pers- persecute the righteous. But even more than that, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. It does not mean, there's no teaching in Scripture that somehow you make yourself worthy by suffering. There is that, that warped theology in Christian history of asceticism. But, but worthy used in Scripture like this is, here is the proof. Here is an indication that this one belongs to me. It is that though they are persecuted, they still follow me. God is proving that we are, when, when, we, when we continue to love God, when we continue to praise Him from the dust, like Job says, when we continue to walk faithfully with Him, when, when we lose, when we, are, when we are disappointed, when we are depressed, when uh, we uh, lose material goods or position because of our walking with Christ, and we continue to worship Him, continue to remain faithful to Christ, then we prove that we are those seeds that are planted in good soil, as Jesus said, and it grew up and Unlike the others that grew up, and when, the, when uh, difficult times came, the thorns and thistles and persecutions and afflictions wrap their tendrils around us, and it cannot choke out the life in us. Why? Because we are united to Christ. We prove that we are, we prove our worth. We prove our genuineness. We prove that we are held by Jesus. Persecution proves that. It's kind of like those, you know, when you go to those, uh, what was it, at fairs? They, maybe they still have, oh, they have it at uh, Costco and places like that. You know, here's, a, here's the latest chemical that's going to take uh, 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 grape juice 
and red wine and blood out of white carpet. And uh, it's, going to, it's going to solve every stain problem you've ever had, and it's going to do away with dog smells. It'll, it'll cure every problem in your life. Well, what do we do? What do, how do we believe? Okay, if that is really true, then do this to it. Put this substance on it. Will it take care of that? That's what suffering does. The world says, oh, yeah, you follow Jesus? You, you say that he takes care of you, holds you? Okay, what about a diagnosis of cancer? What about clinical depression? What about your wife leaves you? What about your child dies? What if somebody cuts off your income? What if you get fired? Okay, now show me your Jesus. Does he still hold you? That's, that's the strategy. Second thing that believers suffer persecution, second strategy, is that it displays the justice of God. Uh, verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Um, the, the reason we suffer persecution now is that God is building up the case against the unjust. At the great judgment day, when, when uh, the trial, the great trial, the great assize occurs, the evidence that will be piled up against the wicked, against wicked systems that have, that have tortured Christians, or all the evils that, that the devil has allowed to run rampant in his world, the, judge, the, 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 the case that will be made is, you did all of that to these, these whom I redeemed, these whom I loved and made to love, these who were sacrificing for this world, these who were, bringing, were being salt and light in this world, you did that wickedness to these all the more it is proven that you deserve this judgment. Third reason, <clears throat> I'm, I'm uh, catching up with time here a little bit. The third reason is it reveals the believability of the Bible's teaching. Verses 7 to 10, follow me here. And to grant relief, here's another evidence, here's another reason. It's to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now you may say... <clears throat> He's not very efficient there. If he's going to, you know, if we're going to balance points as a good rhetorician would do, you know, this is a long subpoint. But it's very satisfying, isn't it? Christ is your Lord and Savior, and you are thinking about the evil of the world. Evil that is personified, evil that is that is uh, that is uh, medical. When you think of 
when you think of the evil that is being perpetrated in the world, is this not a satisfying scene? That this is the way Jesus will deal with those who have done evil. And all of those diseases and forces and systems that have perpetrated evil, is this not deeply satisfying? He says, um, you, have, you have believed this. This, this causes, this, literally, this causes belief in you. You know, every one of us has a secret witness in ourselves of the truthfulness of Scripture, of the truthfulness of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 1 and 2. He is born witness of himself in you. He's written his law in your heart. You see his glory displayed in the heavens. There is, in our conscience, we know there is a God. We know his invisible attributes of, of power and of judgment. There is something deep and instinctive in us that when we, when we uh, see a thunderstorm or we see an earthquake or a volcano, when, when, the, when the creation turns against us, we, there's something instinctive in us, even if we are not Bible-believing Christians to say, you know, there's something out there and he's not happy with me. And there's something deep in us that knows there is a right and a wrong. He's written his law in our hearts. And so that conscience is continually disturbed until we're united with the God who made us through Christ. And when Christ then, when you, when you are introduced to Christ and you believe in him, there's no way that we would stick with him. If he said, yes, I am the one that you have been, that I'm the one who's been calling you all along. I've put my witness in you. Yes, I am the one. But by the way, my hands are tied in that, that thing of evil. Uh, by the way, you know, I've really recruited you here because I'm hoping you can help me with the bad guys. Uh, because I don't know if we're going to win either. Or if he says, <clears throat> what you thought you know, if he's, if he's like a Star Wars god, what you thought was good is not really good, and what you thought was evil is not really evil. It's just two parts of the force, and they're just kind of keeping each other balanced. Nobody in their right mind would continue to. Nobody would lay their lives down for a Savior like that. But here he says, I am the one who has been calling to you all along to tell you that I made you, I want a relationship with you, and I am also the one who is saying to you cosmically and in your conscience, I will right all wrongs at the great day. That's what makes the gospel believable, among other things. But the gospel would not be believable without the doctrine of judgment. I have a friend who served as a... As a um, bivocational uh, missionary in Israel for a number of years as a physical therapist. And he said that he never could get a hearing with Jewish patients who had suffered the Holocaust because he was young, he was an American. Uh, for whatever reason, they dismissed him. 
And then he started saying, he said, my opening line would be, you know it's not over. God is not finished judging evil. Judgment is coming. When he would say that, as an introduction, then he said they were open to having another, a, a discussion about the rest of his faith. So, God's strategies for believers' suffering include, it proves we are members of the kingdom of God, it displays the justice of God and reveals the believability of the Bible's teaching. Now, how are we going to do that? How can we possibly uh, survive, endure the persecution and suffering that face us as Christians? Well, verses 11 and 12, Paul tells us it's only by prayer, but specifically this kind of prayer. Prayer for fellow believers. Notice verse 11, three things. To this end, we always pray for you. We pray what? That our God will make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good work, and every work of faith by his power. We must pray for one another. God is sovereign, yes, but he works through, and he works through means like prayer. He uses our prayers. He has ordained our prayers to keep one another faithful, to help one another uh, survive, to conquer to the end. And we pray these three things for one another. We pray that we would suffer well. That's what he means by prove worthy of their calling. O Lord, preserve them. Cause that seed to go deep in them and to hang on when the, the firestorms of persecution come. Lord, help them, help them to stand firm. We don't pray that they would, it's okay to pray that they would be relieved of it, that they would be, that they would be released from prison. But in the meantime, we pray they'll suffer well. Don't let us just, just hang on and, 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 and remain uh, depressed and defeated <clears throat> while we're going through this family problem or through this diagnosis, but help us, Lord, help us to give testimony to you while we're doing it. Not that we're to be happy-clappy all the time, but help us to, help us to demonstrate the enduring, deeper hope of the resurrection. Number two, we pray that they would obey well, fully resolve, full resolve in every good work. Keep them obedient. And then to serve well, to fulfill every work of faith. Continue to think of others, to serve others in the name of Christ. The second major, uh, we pray for fellow believers that way, we pray specifically for Jesus to be glorified. There are some prayers that Jesus will always answer exactly as you pray them. And here is one, like the old folks used to say, get a name for yourself or, or fetch a name for yourself. Lord Jesus, be glorified. In this, be glorified. Third thing, third reason we pray, or thing for which we pray, we pray for grace and comfort to be shown. Pray for grace and comfort to be shown. You notice he says, the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him 
according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then again in verses 16 and 17, now may our Lord Jesus, in chapter 2, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. We pray for fellow believers to suffer well, obey well, and serve well. We pray for Jesus to be glorified, and we pray for grace and comfort to be shown. I, in the first church I pastored, there was a, a, a woman who was a member there who had <laughs> been converted in her adult years, maybe her late 30s. She lived behind the church. She was one of the neighbors. And uh, she was converted years before I knew her. And uh, she was a fireball. She was married to a difficult man, but she could go toe-to-toe with him. She could out-cuss him. She could out-argue him. She was meaner than he was. And he was afraid of her. And he should have been. <clears throat> but her, her uh, friends led her to Christ. And uh, it revolutionized her life. Uh, I mean, immediately. And she was a bold witness. She was telling everybody about it. Started going to our church. And, and she told her husband about it. Well, he uh, didn't believe it. And so she had uh, four really young kids, and she was exhausted all the time. And, and she would take a nap sometimes when they were taking a nap. One day he came home, and uh, he knew she'd be napping. And he came up and got right in her face. And he said, Betty, wake up! And she woke up like that, and she said, Bill. Why did you wake me up? You know how tired I am, how much I need a nap. He said, uh, you didn't cuss me out like you usually do. I wanted to see if this stuff is really real. Well, you know, it would have been one thing if that had been the first and last of it. But that kind of torment continued the rest of their lives until he died. Unfaithful to their marriage, cruel, uh, shaming to her in public. You know that every one of her children, every one of her grandchildren walks with Jesus. Now they have had their trials. They've had moments when they were wandering far away. There's been some addiction. There's been some, there have been all kinds of, of problems. But I was, I was thinking about that family the other day, thinking, you know, they, 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 they've come around. They've, they've continued. They've endured. Why do they, why do those children, those grandchildren, given the kind of father they have, we know what happens typically to children have a father like that? Given the kind of father, the grandfather, the great-grandfather they had, why did those children endure 
in the faith. Well, Jesus is faithful to them. He's also been faithful to them with a grandmother, with a mother that they watched, tortured for her faith for the whole time they've known her. And yet, she loved Jesus contagiously. She was one of my most faithful encouragers. She was serving somebody all the time. She still was a little scary, but uh, beautiful testimony. And, you know, if there are times when I think, I'm not sure this Christianity thing is, is real, I can look at somebody like Betty and say, oh, it has to be real. There's no other reason. Somebody like that would hang on to Jesus other than Jesus is hanging on to them. We stand firm because in him we are firmly supported. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us enough to tell us what we need to know about the future. And you tell us, you tell us sometimes what we don't want to hear. We, we seldom want to hear that in this world we will have trials or that we will be persecuted or that we are proving that we are united to you and our faith is being made, made uh, coming forth uh, uh, brighter than gold as a result of our suffering. We, that's unpleasant, but thanks for telling us the truth. And also thank you for, as we suffer, giving us insight more and more to the price you paid for us to be our Savior. We have just a slight taste of, of what it meant for you to live in this world among us. Only a slight taste, and it's hard enough. And this slight taste makes us realize you loved us more than we can ever fathom to do this on our behalf. And so we pray that you would transform our resistance, our bitterness, our questioning, our doubting into, into privilege and honor to suffer for the name of Jesus. Cause us to stand firm. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.